Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you, and uh, and a privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, the first book of the New Testament. And on the back table, I actually have outlines that are available. Um, Along with the lyrics to the last song, we'll sing after the after the message today. Um, So again, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 44. So Matthew, chapter 13, verse 44. But before we... Before we hear from the word of God this morning, let's seek the Lord's face and ask for his help that we would be able to see what we can't see on our own. So let's pray. O Lord in heaven, you are our God. We are your people, O Lord. We're a people who needs the help of Almighty God. O Spirit of God, I ask that you would please come upon us today. Would you please come upon me? Would you fill me with courage, with boldness, and with clarity? I ask that you would help me to preach Christ. I ask that you would help us all here to be able to behold the glory of Christ, and that we would be floored at his majesty, that we would come away from this place knowing that there is a God in heaven, that we would be drawn in the worship of that we would be drawn into thanksgiving. Oh Lord, would you please come among us and grant understanding. Lord, I pray for soft hearts this morning. I pray for even mine as we, as we look at this word and as I preach it, Lord, I ask that you would touch us where we need to be touched, that you would, that you would break our hardness of heart, oh God. I ask that you would I ask that you would do away with hypocrisy. I ask that you would do away with pride. Lord, I ask that you would do away with any kind of self-reliance that we might have, O Lord. And I pray that you would do a work here unto even the saving of our souls. Please, God, for your name's sake I ask. Amen. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44, Jesus is speaking and he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. Verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, his disciples, Have you understood all these things? They said unto him, Yes, Lord. So when I was first uh, given the opportunity to to come and preach here this morning, my dad suggested that I that I take one of these kingdom parables to preach on, and so I was originally thinking on either verses or on on either verse 44 or verses 44 and 45, talking about the the priceless value of finding the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure hidden in a field that if you found the kingdom of heaven and if you sold all that you had and if you bought that field 
you would come away the wealthiest person in the world for you would have everything. Or in verse 44 and 45, it's like a merchant who is looking for something. He's seeking for something. He's seeking for just one thing. Well, actually, I got to take that back. He's not seeking for just one thing, but he finds just one thing that satisfies him to the full. It's just one pearl, just one, and he sells it all. And he buys it. And he gains it all. Because he gained the kingdom of heaven. But quite by the providence of God, I ended up listening to a sermon on the on the third of these parables. And the parable of the dragnet, which in the King James is, um, is uh, translated as a regular net, but in the, in the Greek... Uh, as is revealed here in the New King James, it's a dragnet. And and as I listened to this sermon, the, the Lord touched my soul with the sobriety of life. It was quite frankly a sermon on hell. And if you if 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 you're looking at my notes right now, and if you see the the title on it, you might be tempted to not want to sit here in the chair and listen to a sermon on hell. You might want to get up and leave. But I ask you to not, because you can't afford to leave. If you have been a Christian your entire life, even you need to hear a sermon on hell. We together must stop and contemplate and think on the wrath and judgment of God and see what the Lord would teach your soul here this morning as we think about it. And if you're not a believer, you need to know what awaits to spurn the wrath of God, to spurn His glory. You put yourself in grave danger. So with the Lord's help, we will look at this this morning. And I do have to say, there is a temptation to soften a sermon on hell. There's a temptation to not describe it in the fullness of, of how the scripture talks about it because it's offensive. It'll make people uncomfortable in their souls and in their hearts. People may become mad. But we have to. It's in the word of God. And we as Christians are people who think on the things of eternity. That's what we're all about. This, this past week, we had a sister who entered into eternity. And she was safe in the arms of her Savior. No more pain forever. No more sinning forever. Beholding the glory and the grace of God forever. Worshipping better now than she ever has in her whole life. Beholding the King. So... As we are Christians and as we think on the things of eternity, open your eyes and open your ears to see what the Lord would teach you from his word today. So the parable of the dragnet, starting in verse 47. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And this is point number one, the parable's meaning, the parable's meaning. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So let's first consider the dragnet in its catch, the dragnet in its catch. This is one of seven parables in this chapter, all concerning the kingdom of God, the realities of the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, as you think of it, what is a kingdom? It's a realm where therein is a king who rules over citizens of his kingdom. And so as the Lord is beginning in Matthew chapter 13, he's giving seven different parables describing various aspects of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in this particular context, what he is talking about is 
the citizens within this kingdom, the people of the kingdom, or to put it in our in our in our language that we can use visually, who are the people in the church of God? Who are the people in the church of God? Who are they? And what are they like? And quite interestingly, and by the providence of God, this is the last parable of these seven in Matthew chapter 13. And that means that as we come away from reading the entirety of Matthew chapter 13, this would be the last parable ringing in your ears. And it's a sober one. It opens up with the parable of the soils. What is your heart like when you hear the word preached to you? From there, it goes on to the parable of the tares. And after the parable of the tares, it goes on to talking about the kingdom is like a mustard seed. And the kingdom is like leaven. And the kingdom is like a treasure. And the kingdom is like a field or a pearl. And the kingdom is like a net. We end on the net. We're told it is a dragnet. It's a big net that fishermen would take out into the wide sea. Its point being to catch as many fish as possible from as large an area as possible. And the meaning of the parable should be rather simple. The gospel message is cast out into the wideness of the world, calling any and all who would bow the knee to Jesus Christ to come into the kingdom and worship and serve its king. And this occurs through the proclamation of the word of God. The proclamation of the word of God. And that's kind of an interesting way to build a kingdom, isn't it? Through the proclamation of a message. Most kingdoms build their kings through swords and tanks. The Lord builds his kingdom through a word. A word. The word that speaks a universe into existence. And upholds all things by the word of his power. A word which... The Apostle Paul says he is not ashamed of, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Some trust in horses and chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And our God is mighty, and he works in this world through the word. Through the word. And as the word goes forth, as it spreads abroad, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 calls it the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of preaching unto the saving of the soul, which is another fabulous aspect about, about about this kingdom which the Lord is building. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is building a kingdom not only to come in, and destroy the rebels of the world. He's coming in with the word of mercy for the rebels of the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save the lost. That's from Luke 19, verse 10. It says in John 3, verse 17, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, God didn't send Jesus Christ into the world to just send you to hell. What did he do? He sent his son into the world to save the world, that the world might be saved through him. And those that are brought into this kingdom net are innumerable and diverse. They are innumerable and diverse. Verse 47, the end of verse 47 says, The gathered some of every kind, of every kind. Within theology, there's a concept known as the covenant of redemption, where God, within his triune being, made a promise to give to his son 
a people. You can read about it in Psalm chapter 2. I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And so as we continue to read through the scriptures, some of every kind is gathered into this kingdom. At the, at the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 5, we see some from, from every people, nation, language, all gathering together who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And as, and as you read through the scripture, you see how many different kinds of people have been brought into the kingdom of God. You have Bible scholars like Saul of Tarsus who needed to be saved God came to save that Bible scholar and he made him a powerful preacher of the word of God. You have the Lord Jesus Christ coming to save merchant women like Lydia in the town of Philippi. Just a businesswoman. And the Lord came and he saved her. Opened her heart to hear what Paul was speaking, it says in Acts Sorcerers. Did you know that? The Lord Jesus Christ came to save witches and warlocks. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. When the Ephesians, after they heard the word of God, they burned their books. They burned their magic spells because they'd been changed and saved, been brought into the kingdom. You have shoemakers that have been saved. You have missionaries that have been saved. My mom was a missionary for years before she got saved. I have a seminary friend back in South Carolina whose whose wife had been helping him in the ministry for nine years before she became a citizen of the kingdom of God. All kinds, all kinds brought in by the gospel net. And I want us to think about that. Think about who who the message is supposed to go to. The, the marijuana growers out in the hills, they have to hear it. We cannot afford to harbor any kind of resentment in our hearts against them. They must hear the message of the kingdom and be brought in, some from every kind. Latinos across the border, don't despise them in your heart. Love and pray for them. Because they are lost sinners just as you were once a lost sinner. A son of Adam, that's all they are, just another son of Adam who needs to hear the message of the kingdom and be brought in. But, though it be true that some of every kind are gathered into this kingdom dragnet, the main emphasis here is not so much on the... the the, the various kinds of people that are brought in, but only two people, two different kinds of people that are brought in. In addition, let, let me explain, because I know that sounds confusing. On the one hand, as the gospel net is spread out into all the world, some from every tribe, people, and nation are brought into the kingdom of God. But as that happens, something occurs where perhaps in the front pew we might have a true believer and sitting right next to him may be a professing believer and both are in the gospel net. Both have heard it and they both come in. Well, where do we see that? Verse number 48 which when it was full they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels but threw the bad away. Where were they? They were both in the kingdom. 
They were both in the kingdom net. They were both sitting in the pew. They were both sitting in the pew. And that's actually the main emphasis of this of this parable. Jesus Christ isn't so much talking about how many different kinds of people are gathered into the kingdom. The, the emphasis of his message is, as the kingdom is gathered in very many kinds, there are but two kinds within the visible church. It is a mixed citizenry, you might say. In, within the visible church of the kingdom, there are those who are truly citizens of heaven, yes, but there are also citizens of the world who look just like the citizens of heaven. And that's a very scary thing. That's a very scary thing. And that's going to be the emphasis of our message here. But I want us to think about that. Because, brothers and sisters, did you know that there are literally millions of people all across the world right now who sit in pews, who read their Bibles, and who pray, and have been baptized, and are not true citizens of the kingdom? There are some good and some bad, or to put it in theological terms, see, that you, you might put it this way. Verse 48 is describing the fish. You have good fish and you have bad fish, right? But, but Jesus isn't concerned about fish. He's concerned about human souls. Who is that? Verse 49 so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked, those who have rejected God's law, those who have refused to bow in submission to the king of heaven, from among the just. Who are the just? The just are those that we were speaking about on Sunday this morning. The just are those who have repented and believed the gospel. The just are those who have no righteousness of their own to offer before the throne of heaven. They have no plea. They have, they have nothing with which they might be able to offer to God and say, God, this is what I have. Will you take it in exchange for me so that way I can go into heaven? No, instead the just shall live by faith. The just are those who are hidden away in Christ and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is who sits in the pews. The wicked and the just. But think about this. Think about this. How is it that an unjustified person, how is it that a non-believing person can sit in a pew right next to a believing person how is it that a non-believer could sit right next to you in church and look almost exactly like you? What is the difference? And are you bold enough to ask yourself? Here's where it gets personal. Are you bold enough to ask yourself, what if I'm the other one? What if... What if I'm not justified? Can you, can you afford to not ask yourself that question? How, how is it that there's a mixed congregation? Well, one, hypocrisy. That's one way how this can happen. Hypocrisy hides the wicked in the congregation of the church. There are some people who come to church with the intention of deceiving other people where it is socially appropriate to look like a Christian and talk a certain way and do certain things all for fraud so that other people would look at them and say, wow, that is a really good Christian. That's possible. And you know what? That person is not saved. There are, other, there are other people, pastors, who take upon themselves the name of pastors who through hypocrisy come in and talk a talk so that way they will steal money from other Christians. You hear these, you hear these pastors all the time on TV 
They are hypocrites and they are not Christians. They are the wicked among the just. The wicked in the net. So hypocrisy. Another way, in Asia, somebody might decide to come into the church and become a Christian so that way they would have rice and medicine. Oh yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Can I have, can, can I have some rice? And that's a powerful temptation when you don't have food. It is. But is that really an excuse? There are, there, are, there are so many problems in that scenario that I was just speaking about with missions in Asia. So many problems. But the fact is that if someone is just coming to church for the rice and the medicine, they are not saved. They're a hypocrite. Putting on a mask, covering the heart. And here's the second and and scarier one. Self-deception hides the wicked in the midst of the congregation. Where people can lie to themselves and say, Yep, I'm saved. I know it. Because I read my Bible. Because I pray. Because I evangelize. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Hold a, hold a finger there in Matthew chapter 13 and flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. The Lord Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Could you imagine Jesus looking you in the eye and telling you that? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many, 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 many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They were self-deceived. Self-deceived. Lied to themselves. And you think about it. You think about it. They were so close. They knew the name. They sat in the pew next to you. They held the scriptures in their hand day in and day out. They prayed. But there was something wrong. They missed one thing. And that's all it takes. They just missed one thing. You know what they missed? Reliance on Christ alone. It was, there's, there's nothing else that will commend you before God. The only hope that a Christian has to stand before God is to say Christ. There's an elder back at my church in South Carolina who when he was when he was speaking with one of the uh, one of the former pastors there, he was so worried about his assurance of salvation. He was so worried about assurance. Am I actually and truly saved? And and the pastor asked this man, this man Mr. Carper What's your hope? And he says, well, I believe in Jesus. And the pastor told him, that's not right. Christ 
is your hope. Don't start the sentence by saying, I believe. What's your hope? Christ! Christ is the hope. It's not what you do. You have nothing. Zero. The only hope is Christ. So, bringing it back then. We, we, we look at this back in Matthew chapter 13. We look at this dragnet and it gathers good and bad. It gathers wicked and just. All in the net. And, and, and what happens? What happens? Verse 48. When it was full, at the right time, when the dragnet was full... They drew to shore powerfully, irresistibly. The net was drawn to shore. The end had come. There was no saying, I don't want to go yet. I am not ready. The end had arrived. And they sat down. They were careful. They knew what they were doing in sorting these fish and gathered the good into vessels. Well, why would they gather the good into vessels? For the use of the master. To be preserved for the master. To be preserved for, for the one who was going to use them. But through the bad away, so it will be at the end of the age. Now here's a here's a sobering thought before we before we look at some of at some of the most fearful thoughts in the Holy Scripture. There is hope at the end of the message, brothers and sisters. There is hope that should bring up our souls and raise our voices in praise and our eyes in prayer and fill our hearts with joy at the end of the message. But let's gaze at the judgment of the wicked before we do so. Because, brothers and sisters, if you are willing to be honest with yourself, sitting in these chairs and you think there's no way on earth that I could be that I could be the fake there's no way that I could be the fraud there's just no way well in Hebrews 4 verses 11 and 13 we are told of the word of God which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword is sharp and it pierces to the division of soul, your innermost self, your soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You may be able to hide from the world You may be able to hide from those whom you sit next to. But by the authority of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God, you will not hide forever. Because the next verse says, And all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When the net is drawn, you will come and you will be found out what is in your heart, no matter how good the facade. Let's go a little deeper, brothers and sisters. Let's go a little deeper. Point number two, the parable's fire and glory. Yes, there is glory that is preserved for the good fish. 
There is glory that is preserved for the justified, for those who are hidden away in Christ. They are gathered up into heaven to behold forever the glory of their Savior, gathered into vessels for the use of the Master. But they threw the bad away. They threw the bad away. Look at that word away for a minute. You might translate it outside. Outside, they threw the bad outside. Well, outside of what? Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 talks about away from the presence of the Lord. The wicked cast away from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? That means outside of his mercy forever, outside of his patience forever, no more patience, outside of his kindness and grace forever. The scripture speaks of the outer darkness. Matthew 22 and verse 13, uh, verse 13, outside of the light. There's not even a sunrise that that is going to come up over the rim of hell to give you hope in your heart outside of the light forever. Think of the rich man in Luke chapter 16. You remember the rich man in Lazarus? Lazarus, when he died, was carried away to paradise into the bosom of Abraham. But there was the rich man. And do you remember what he wanted? He wanted one drop of water on his tongue. None. Ever. Ever. No more grace. No more mercy. That was done. Forever. You're outside. Our texts speak of a fiery furnace. Verses 49 and 50, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. And we all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, my friends. When the fire of God fell from heaven and burned those cities, here's something that happened with those fires. They went out. They stopped burning eventually. Not this. Not this. Do you know why? Because a sin against the infinitely holy God merits an infinitely worthy punishment. Always, forever in the flame. The flame of his wrath. The flame of his anger because I had spurned his law, and I had hated God. I was his enemy. So it's the fire. The fire, Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 to 15, speaks of a lake of fire. A lake of fire. And it's everlasting. It's everlasting fire. Turn over to Matthew chapter 25. My friends, there is a there is a false teaching abroad known as annihilationism, which basically says after after one has suffered in hell for a period of time, he will go out of existence. But that is not true. That is a lie. There is no going out of existence in hell. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. Again, the Lord Jesus speaking. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, just as eternal as heaven is, so is the punishment of hell. 
You see that in verse 46? If you think you want eternal life because because it's a nice thought, but you don't want an eternal hell because it's a scary thought, the Bible puts them side by side. Hell is just as eternal as life is, according to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. And so do you know what that means, my friends? Is that those who enter into that fiery furnace forever and ever. And I, I, I didn't come up with this thought. I've heard it in sermons so many times, but it is a powerful thought. After one has been in the lake, away from the presence of the Lord, who has heard the word, depart from me. After 10,000 years of, of time spent in that place, yet the words will read, depart from me. And those who are not safe in Christ will still read those 10,000 years later. 10 million years later, depart from me forever and ever and ever conscious, fully conscious of the pain and the full wrath of God bearing down upon your soul because you had rejected the grace of Christ in your life. Because you would not bow the knee to Christ because you would not trust in Him alone forever and always away from the glory of the Lord. No reprieve. No reprieve. And again, they were so close, my friends. They were so close. Matthew 13. They were all in the net. They were all in the net. Every last one. They sat down in the pews. They said amen in the sermons. They prayed. But they never made it. They never made it. And you know, my friends, the scripture teaches us to examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. You must think on hell and all of its horror for you to look within your own heart and test yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Will you not? In your chair right now, can you really afford to think, oh, I really hope so-and-so is listening to this right now. This is between you and God. You and the Master who created your soul. And the net is being drawn in. And they will sit down and they will sever the wicked from among the just. Which are you? So let's come up for air, my friends. Point number three, the parables drive. Let's learn the lessons from hell. Let's learn the the lessons from hell. Lesson number one, let hell's fire drive you to the cross. Let it drive you to the cross. As you, as you, with the eyes of faith, read the Holy Scriptures and behold what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching to your soul about what awaits the hypocrite, about what awaits the self-deceived, about what awaits the lost. What do you do? The cross. 
It's not church. That's not the answer. What do you do? The cross. To what do you cling? There is nothing else. Philippians 3. You you do need to see this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Because, my friends, you have to understand that by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's what it says in Galatians. So if we're not justified by the works of the law, by what are we justified? Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. The Apostle Paul speaking. He says, For we are the circumcision. In other words, we're, we're, we're really the people of God who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in what you do. Clean it out. It's not about the flesh. Though I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised on the eighth day. Paul was a true Jew, Jew of Jews. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. When it comes to the law of God, I was as good as they come. That's what Paul could have said. He says, I could have said that. You've never met a person like that, you know. You've never met a person like that. The Apostle Paul was as good as they come in terms of human language. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. For Christ. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and being found in Him, in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. That is the hope, my friends. You bring nothing in your hands. It's not your prayers. It's not your coming here on Sunday. It's not how you treat your husband. It's the righteousness of God in Christ. The righteousness of God in Christ. Oh, my friends, as you see, as you see the hell to which you were headed, to which you were headed, you as an individual soul, when your number would be called and you would meet your maker face to face, you have no recourse except the cross of Christ. No righteousness. No righteousness of your own. So as you look into your heart, And if you see yourself to be falling into the pit and you know yourself to be a hypocrite and if you know yourself to be self-deceived flee to the cross. Because do you know why? When you flee to the cross he will receive. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. The Lord who taught on the depths in the smoke of hell says to your heart, All who would come to me, I will in no wise cast out. But what if I'm an idolater? That's a really bad sin. What if I just worship myself? 
Will Jesus take me then? All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I met a man a couple of weeks ago who thought that he was basically Esau of the scriptures. Do you remember Esau? He was a reprobate. He was lost. Scripture says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. This man read that and he says, I'm Esau, I cannot come. God won't take me. That's a lie. That's a lie. Because the Lord says, All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Psalm 55, verse 16 says, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Not as for them, as for me, as for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Even you, even you, you are not so bad that the Lord cannot take you. He can, and He freely forgives it all. Cast all the sins into the into the depths of the sea. And as He casts away those sins by the sacrifice of the cross, do you know what He gives in exchange? His righteousness. His righteousness. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 6, one of the names of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord our righteousness. Now think of what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the Lord who gives me righteousness. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say the Lord who makes me righteous. Well, if he doesn't give it to me, and if he doesn't make me righteous, well, then how? Because he is, he is the Lord, my righteousness. Your righteousness, hidden away in Christ, in the Beloved. Not standing before God in your own flesh. Not standing before God with what you have. No confidence in the flesh. What do you stand before God with? The righteousness of God. Christ. That's it. Look to the Son of Man as the serpent raised on the pole. Lesson two, let hell's fire fuel your praise. Let hell's fire fuel your praise. Because that was you. That was you. Falling, falling, falling into hell. By nature, a child of wrath, the scripture says, that was you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. The target of God's anger. Because you refused to bow the knee to God. You did not want to keep his law. And even if you wanted to, you couldn't. And yet what happened? You cried out to the Lord and he saved you. He saved you from that. He saved you from the smoke of the pit. He saved you from the outer darkness. You, individually, as a name that he knows, which he carries on his shoulders and over his heart as the great high priest that he is. That was you. And he saved you. From the depths of hell. 
There's a great verse in Psalm 50. Verse 15. The Lord speaks to those who would read the scripture and he says, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. What does that say? God says, I want you to cry out to me in the day of trouble. But what greater day of trouble, my friend, than when you are standing on the brim of hell and you know it and and you refuse to believe it and you think there's no way on earth that I could be that bad. He wants you to call out to him in the day of trouble. And you know what he will do? He will deliver you. And then what will you do? Glorify him. Glorify him. That's a great a great thing for we have a wonderful savior my friends. And do you want to know how he saved us? He saved us not just by delivering you from hell. He saved you from hell by experiencing millions of lives worth of hell himself. That's what the cross is all about, my friends. The cross isn't just an instrument of torture that we read about in ancient times. The scripture says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Cursed by whom? By God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. A curse. Why would he be a curse? Because he's being treated as if he were a lawbreaker. He he is in essence experiencing hell by hanging on that tree. Why? Why would he do that? For you. To save you. To save you. That your hell would be taken away from you and placed on another. Literally taken away from you and placed on another. So that when he delivers you in the day of trouble, you would glorify him. And as Ephesians puts it, would be to the praise of the glory of his what? Grace. He saved me from hell. He saved me from hell. And the third point, let hell's fires fuel your witness. Your witness. As you look on what God saved your soul from, and as you read the scriptures, and as you see that many are cast into that lake forever. How can you experience such grace and not open your mouth? There are a couple of things wrong with that, you know. One is either you don't believe in hell the way you need to believe in hell. You don't think it's real. You don't actually think it's real. Two, you just don't love people. Because love looks like something. Love looks like another person seeing the eternal soul of a wanderer and coming to them and saying Jesus Christ offers to forgive your sins full and free if that, if that doesn't fuel our hearts to open our mouths there is something deeply wrong inside our hearts and we must come to the Lord in prayer
in repentance because that's a sin to not love the souls of men that way. And three, we don't think very highly of God if we don't open our mouths about the gospel. It's as if we think he's not worthy of the entire world to follow after him. It's as if we think that God is not worthy of the worship of the entire universe. For when you shut your mouth, when I close my mouth, when I get scared and act shamefully as a saved Christian and refuse to share with another person of the love of God in Christ, I'm acting as if God is not a big deal. So gaze into hell with the eyes of faith. Look and let it fuel you, let it push you to call out to the lost, to make things awkward, my friends. Do not worship awkwardness. Do not do not let the, the, the fear of an awkward situation keep you from talking about Christ. We live in a culture that will talk literally about anything else. Literally about anything else. Anywhere else. But as soon as a person starts talking about things that actually matter, everybody gets awkward. Who cares? If a man loves a woman and he gets down on his knees to propose, that's kind of an awkward thing to do, isn't it? I mean, nobody actually does that in real life. But if, if a man is willing to do that for, for, a, for a woman, even in front of everybody else, can't you open your mouth for Christ? If you're willing to, to do something so simple as get down on your knee and ask a, ask a girl to marry you, can't you just share the gospel with a sinner and point them to the cross? Of course you can. Of course you can. So my friends, as we look at this parable of the dragnet and we think of and we think of what of what God has done for us. Oh, consider your own hearts. Consider your own self and ask yourself, what is my hope? What is my hope? Am I just playing the part? Am I a hypocrite? Ask yourself that. And then stop asking yourself that and look to Christ. The solution is not introspection, you know. Those of us who are of tender conscience, we can look in our own hearts and just say, yep, there's no way I'm making it. I'm too much of a hypocrite. There's no way I can make it. Stop looking at yourself and look to the Son of Man on the pole. Yes, be honest with yourself, but as the preacher Robert Murray McChain said, for every look you take at yourself, take ten at Christ. Ten at Christ. Not at your prayers. No, far be it. Not at your prayers. Not at your evangelism. Ten at Christ. At Christ, look to the Son of Man on the pole. Let it push you into, into praise. Praise of God. And as you meditate on hell, meditate hard and long on it and allow it to, to, to well your heart up with thanksgiving to God because that's what he saved you from. And then take that and you go. You go. You be willing to say, 
Have you been made right with God? And then share the gospel of Christ with them. No better way to live life. Life is serious, my friends. Let's learn the lessons from hell. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, you are sovereign and king over all. Lord, I pray for I pray for a gift upon us today. God, would you please would you please help us to become a serious people? Lord, I pray that you would please help us to remember the things of heaven and hell and help us to remember the souls of men. Lord Jesus, you saved my life from hell. I was, I was on the brim and I was falling. A child of wrath. And you had pity on me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving millions of people with, with your blood. Help us now as we as we sing and worship to you this last.